0: All right, so uh, get your Bible out and turn to the book of Romans. And if you do not have a Bible of your own or the one that you have maybe is just a little difficult for you to understand at times and you would appreciate a new one, under a lot of the seats here, there are little blue paperback ones. And uh, I would like to invite you to please take that and keep it. It is our gift as a church To you, Uh, it's the version that I will be preaching from today, which is the English Standard Version. Let's see here. Okay. All right. Situated. Let's pray one more time before we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, do not take the task of sharing with your bride lightly. And I pray, God, that you would help me communicate clearly what it is to know the mercy and the grace that you have for us and that you freely offer to us. Lord, for those here, would you make it real for them today? Not just knowledge, but truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. So, I'm not going to lie to you, uh, I have been looking forward to this Sunday for months. Uh, we've been preparing, leading up to what we're doing today. Um, as most of you know in this room, some of you may not know this, Nate is actually, uh, this is his first week on a, on a sabbatical that he's taking. You know, a sabbatical is a fancy, sounds like a fancy, super churchy word. Um, I haven't really heard it used outside of church context, so I guess it is. Um, but a sabbatical is not just a vacation Um, It is a time that Nate is taking to be rejuvenated, to grow in his own faith, and to prepare for the next season that's coming up for us as a church so that he can be refreshed and lead us through that in the direction that the Lord would have us go. And so that's going to be four weeks long, starting this week. And while uh, he's on sabbatical, these next four weeks, we're going to take a break from going through the book of Luke. That's what we've been doing as a church here for the last several months. We've been going through the gospel of Luke, following the life of Jesus and the events uh, that happened there and, and drawing out from that, answering the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter to me? And we've been looking at that. But what we're going to do now during this four weeks is take a break from that and go through a small, short series in the book of Romans, which is why I had you turn to Romans chapter 12. But let me give you a little bit of context uh, to help you understand what's going on here in the book of Romans. I'm not going to go super in-depth, but uh, I'll let you know at least that the book of Romans is not really a book. It's actually a letter that was written by a guy named Paul. Now, kids that are out here with me today, we actually learned about Paul last week in Mercy Kids, didn't we? We learned about how Paul was a persecutor of Christians, meaning that he was not nice to Christians. He wanted to throw them in jail and wanted bad things to happen to them. But while he was on his way to do that to Christians, God showed up and God revealed himself to Paul. And Paul became the very thing that he used to hate, a follower of Jesus. And the rest of his life was spent trying to get other people to know Jesus and starting churches that would then help people know Jesus. And so that's what we learned about Paul last week. And uh, this letter is, you can kind of think of it, and Paul wrote a lot of letters, um, but you can kind of think of this letter as Paul's magnum opus, his masterpiece. Uh, This letter is not like the other letters. Um, It goes super in-depth and goes through little rabbit trails that all have to do with one defined purpose that he's covering in this letter. And so if you can think of it like this, like sometimes if you write a letter to somebody in your family, like some, some families I know will practice like at, at Christmas time, they won't just send a Christmas card, right? They'll like, write like a family letter. And each paragraph will have something about each member of the family, like an update about their life. Like, Dad got a new job today. So-and-so lost their first tooth. Mom went crazy today and is in the madhouse. And like all those things like, happen. Uh, but this is not like a letter like that, where uh, it's a bunch of little individual things that aren't really connected to one central idea. This is more like you writing a letter... To talk about one thing with one person. And instead of getting a paragraph, you have the whole page to talk about it. That's what this is. It's in depth. It is specific. And he's focusing on one thing. And that one thing starts in Romans chapter 1. You can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. It's just a couple pages to the left. That one thing starts in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 is Paul explaining what the gospel is. He used that word there that it is God's power unto salvation. He spends the next 11 chapters explaining how it is God's power unto salvation How is it that the gospel works? Like, literally, like, what does God do to save me from my sin? It takes Paul 11 chapters to explain that until he gets to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 mark a transition point in the book of Romans to where Paul is not anymore talking about how the gospel works, like how God actually accomplishes salvation. It's from chapter 12 through chapter 15, so the next four chapters are all about how the gospel applies to my life. It's kind of like in cha- at the beginning of chapter 12, it's like we're saying, okay, so I'm a Christian, now what? What now? What happens after I'm a Christian? How does this change my life? How does this apply to me on a practical day-to-day basis? And verses 1 and 2 are a summary of the next four chapters. And so this whole series that we are doing is what I'm wanting to do with this is for us to ask that question of ourselves. I'm a Christian. Now what? That is if you profess to be a Christian. What does that mean for us now? How does this practically impact my life? What should change in me as the result of me being a Christian? Here's why I think it's important for us to do this series. It's because I'm just going to level with you right now, be really honest with you. The vast majority of people that I have met that live in this region of our country, this region of our state, of Bullock County, have a kind of faith that is only focused on something that happens after they die and not about the life that they have right now. That's the kind of religion I find all over the place. The faith that people adhere to only speaks into whether or not they're going to go to heaven or go to hell. And that's after you die. But it doesn't say anything about how I live now or maybe even more importantly, why I live now. That's what this series is meant to address with us as a church. How does my faith not only impact where I spend eternity, how does it impact what I do now with my life? How does it give me purpose? How does it give me a a direction to go, a map to follow? What does this do for me? And so that's why we're going to be doing this series. And so here's what I want to ask of you, okay? Starting this week and for the next weeks, the next three weeks after that, I want you to come here asking three questions of yourself. I want you to ask these three questions. How does God want me to change, to grow, and to live? How does God want me to change? How does God want me to grow, and how does God want me to live as a result of this truth that we are talking about here? Okay? So that's what we're doing in this series moving forward. So we've got four weeks to cover two verses. Strap in. It's going to be awesome, okay? So, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I, I want to say this sparingly uh, and not, not, this is not something that you should hear a preacher say all of the time, okay? Uh, so call me out if I say it too much, uh, but I don't think I say it all the time. Uh, that sometimes the, the version of the Bible that you are using is, is not helpful, for when you're trying to understand, okay? For the vast majority of the time, the people that translate this Well, they usually all the time know what they're doing, depending on the translation you're using. And the ESV, I use it, I study with it. The passages of Scripture I try to memorize are from the ESV. I preach to you from the ESV. The ESV is out there in your seats. But the ESV, the English Standard Version, is not always very helpful when it comes to a verse like this. Because when we get to the very beginning of verse 1, and it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that sounds like a little difficult to understand and put together exactly what he's communicating. Let me read to you what it says in the New International Version. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. It's, It's read from a perspective of looking back on something that's just happened, and he starts with this word, therefore. Okay? And here's what you need to do. If you're ever reading your Bible and you see the word therefore, just ask yourself this question. You might have heard this before. What's the therefore, therefore? What does this do? And whenever you, say, whenever you see this, what he's about to say is dependent on what he had just said. Or what he has just said is the cause of what he's about to tell you. It's the reason or the purpose behind which he's about to tell you. Let me give you an example. A very simple sentence. My car is low on gas. Therefore, I stopped at the gas station and got gas. Why did I stop at the gas station and get gas? Because my car was low on gas. Seems really simple, doesn't it? But apply that same principle to verse 1. And when he says, Therefore, brothers, or I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that therefore is a reference to the last 11 chapters. And he's making a hard and fast transition. He's saying, look, what I'm about to tell you is based on what I've just got done explaining. And so we oftentimes have a temptation to want to get right to the action steps. Just tell me what to do. Let's get to it. Let's get this done. I just want to be over with. Tell me what to do. But the therefore is oftentimes very, very important. Many times the way that you live and the way that you act in your normal life is because of an event or a memory or something that's happened to you a long time ago that has changed the way you live now. Let me give you some examples. Maybe it was a season of financial hardship that forever changed the way you deal with your finances. Maybe you went bankrupt, and now you no longer will ever use debt for anything else. Or maybe you just got out of control with spending money on certain things, and you, it finally caught up with you that you have a problem, and now you've, you've got to have accountability in life. Or maybe uh, a lot of you, I think, will relate to this, that maybe it's like, if you remember back to the time when you lost somebody, when they died, and that was kind of like the first person that died that you really had a close relationship with. That kind of changes the way you view relationships in your life moving forward. makes you value them a lot more. But the reason you do is because you lost somebody that was close to you and you wish you had more time with them. Or maybe... You're working hard on, on this assignment, and you get an A. And so that causes you from now on moving forward. You like getting A's. It feels good getting A's. So you work hard on all your school assignments moving forward. Some of us would understand that. Others, maybe not. Just <laughs> depends. Depending on your background. But those that those are examples. Today, I want to linger on just this first part of verse 1 because we've got to understand what I would call the why behind this. We've got to understand the why behind our transformed life. We've got to understand the why and the reason that we would even live like this, that we would do these things. Paul thought it was pretty important. So important, in fact, he spent twice as long explaining the reason for living like this than he did for prescribing how for you to live. He spent 11 chapters talking about the reason and only four chapters talking about the imperatives or the commands, the the implications of why you should do this and how this should change you. So the why is pretty important. It's important to you. Let me talk to you if you're a teenager or you're a child that's getting close to being a teenager. Look, there's a statistic out there that after you turn 18 and if you go to college The statistic is the vast majority of you will stop having any kind of involvement in church whatsoever. And you might think right now, no, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that. But you want to know the reason that happens? It's because you base all of your religious life and religious activity on something that somebody has told you to do, and you don't have a good why. You don't have a good reason to do it. And that has never been impressed upon you. Listen to me. It is much more important than you keeping much more important than you keeping your sexual purity before you're married is why you're keeping your sexual purity before you're married. Much more important than you having a good work ethic and getting good grades is why you have good work ethic and good grades. Much more important than you being involved in church, you reading your bible and you praying is why you are involved in church, you read your bible and you pray. Parents, let me talk to you for just a second. Do not sabotage your kids' faith only by giving them commands to perform and no reason why. Don't try to make your children little obedient machines that have no love for God. Teach them about who God is. Teach them the things that He says about how He loves them, about His grace and His mercy towards them. We're going to get into that but if you, if you only make them little obedient machines to you and to God and to live this life that looks so great, they're going to get to a stage where they don't have any reason to keep doing that. And they will stop. Teach them who God is. Invest that in them. So let's ask the question, what is the why? How could we summarize this? Well, we're blessed because Paul actually provides us with a summary of, For what we can look at and say the last 11 chapters of Romans mean, what it all amounts to. How could you summarize this in a short, simple phrase? He does it for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The mercy of God is the shortest, simplest summary of the gospel that you could ever hear and that you could ever give another person. In these 11 chapters, if and I would encourage you guys to do this over these next four weeks, read the book of Romans. If you have a one-to-one partner and you guys hold yourselves accountable and you read the Bible together, read Romans. It'll challenge you. It'll probably take you longer than four weeks if you're, if you're doing it in depth, okay? It, it'll take you a while, uh, but it is so valuable. It's so good. But one of the things you'll see is that there are actually so many facets, so many sides of the gemstone that that are revealed about God when you look at the gospel and you try to see the different parts of it and how it works together and how it all fits together. And so you could summarize the gospel by saying any, any version, any, not any version, but any part of it. Let me, let me tell you, Paul, when he's writing this, could have summarized the gospel by saying the justice of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the justice of God. Look, the deal here's the deal. Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, uh, it wasn't just some act of goodwill towards humanity. It wasn't just some thing for him to show us how committed he is to us, how he wants to be involved with us. It was an act of justice. It actually has legal implications for you as you stand before God. This is called justification. It's a great word. You should talk about it in missional community this week. All right. But here's the deal. Each one of us has the same dilemma. We have the same problem. One day you will die and you will stand before God, before his throne, and he will examine you. He will judge you whether or not you are righteous, holy good, or unrighteous and guilty of sin. This is what 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 says says or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god there is a judgment there is condemnation for those who are deemed unrighteous before god these are legal terms so how how the question comes how is it that i can be righteous how is it that i can be good before god well we are told In Romans, I think this is chapter 2, verse 13. I wrote down chapter 1, but I think it's chapter 2. It says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. So you see, being righteous before God is not just about knowing the right answers. It's about doing the right answers. You've got to do it. But we have a problem. If that's how you be righteous before God, you've got a big problem. Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, in God's eyes, no one is righteous, not even one, because we have all fallen. So that's a big problem for us. But what God does to answer this, because God, in His holiness and in His justice, must punish that transgression. He must punish unrighteousness. So what He does is, God, instead of punishing us, sent his son, Jesus, to go on the cross and to transfer our guilt onto him so that when Jesus is killed, God's wrath is poured out on him and not us. And then vice versa, the righteousness that Jesus had from living a perfect life is given to us and we are now what Second Corinthians calls the righteousness of God. And that is what it means to be justified. We are considered just. Before God. Because we have his righteousness. Justice has been served. The penalty for sin has been carried out. That is a major theme in the gospel. And Paul talks about it a lot. Specifically in Romans chapter 3. But when he determines a phrase to describe in a small way what the gospel is. He doesn't say the justice of God. Paul could have said the provision of God. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Just a couple pages over to your left. Romans chapter 3, if we start in verse 23 and read through 25, I'm going to pick out some of the things it says here. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by Faith In those verses, two times, it references the fact that God has provided something for us that we could never provide for ourselves. It is a gift to us. God has brought forward a sacrifice, a propitiation. It's a fancy word for meaning that Jesus takes our place and we take his place, right? He is a sacrifice for us on our behalf. You might remember the story of Abraham with his only son Isaac, told by God, go to the top of this mountain and sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. Abraham obeys, and on the way, what does Isaac ask? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a sacrifice. He will. They get to the top, and right as Abraham is about to descend the knife onto his son and kill him as God has commanded God says, stop. And he looks over in the bush, and there's a ram caught by its horn in a bush. God had provided a sacrifice. We stand before God, guilty of our sin, unable to do anything about it. There's nothing that we can provide. There's nothing that we can do. If we are going to be saved, it must be because of the provision of God. There is nothing else that can do it, and God has provided a sacrifice for us. Our God is a God that provides. God's provision is a major theme in the gospel, but that is not how he decides to summarize it for us. It could have been the inclusiveness of God. Okay? Stick with me on that. It could have been the inclusiveness of God, but I I mention this because specifically in Romans 3... (coughs) After he gets done talking about this idea of justification, in verse 27, he brings it back around to address this idea that in order to be saved by God, you've got to be a part of a certain group of people, and you've got to follow certain rules, and you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Being saved used to be meant that you had to be born in the right place at the right time. But he blows that out of the water, and he says, not anymore. In verse 29 of chapter 3, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Now skip over to Romans chapter 10. I want to read this for you. A couple pages to your right. Chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of who? Of all. Bestowing His riches on who? All who call on him. For who? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The free offer of the gospel is not an offer to just a few. It's an offer to everybody. The gospel is not just for some that come from a well-off socioeconomic background and have their lives all put together. The gospel is not just for some races. It's not just for some genders. It is for everybody. Which means that Mercy Hill as a church should be a conglomeration. We should look like our community looks like. We should have different people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, of different races, of of different ages that are here worshiping with us. Why? Because the gospel isn't just for young families. The gospel isn't just for old people. The gospel isn't just for kids. It's for everybody. And we should be reaching everybody with this. God has offered this to all freely. And so we could describe the gospel as the way that God includes people into his family. But that's not how Paul describes the gospel here. Paul describes the gospel by saying, it is the mercies of God. There's something about God's mercy that should stand out to us and should amaze us and should be the focus of, of what we say when we're talking about what God has done. In the gospel, and here's why, in the gospel we stand before the almighty God, totally exposed with all of our shortcomings, all of our flaws, all of our mistakes, laid bare, there's nowhere to hide, and in the moment that we fear destruction, when we expect God's Heavy hand of wrath to descend upon us. Instead, he embraces us as his own child. You think of the story of the prodigal son who dishonored his father and should be ashamed of the way he's acted, taken this inheritance, ran and squandered everything that he had, and then came back to his father, begging and hoping that his father would have enough mercy on him to make him the lowliest of servants. But instead of doing that, instead of his dad bringing him back in, giving him a lecture, telling him about how to follow all these rules and telling him how he needs to change if he's going to welcome him back in, instead his dad sees him from a distance and he runs to him. And instead of descending a heavy hand of wrath, he embraces him as a son. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a situation in life before where you've really, really messed up, And it's clear. And you know that there's nowhere for you to hide. And you know that you've just got to face the facts. And you don't know what's going to happen. But you are terrified that the heavy hand of wrath is going to descend upon you. But another person has instead shown you grace and mercy. That changes the way you look at life. When I was... uh, I think I was like late middle school when this happened. Uh, In my neighborhood uh, that we live, uh, when I was in like uh, early elementary school, my aunt and my uncle, my cousin uh, moved in across the street from us, which is really awesome. It's fun to have family like literally that close. Um, And so they lived across the street from us. But around late middle school, early high school time, might have been the summer in between. Uh, my aunt and my uncle uh, were going through a very nasty divorce, uh, and they've been divorced since. And uh, it's just—it was a really messy situation. Obviously, you've probably seen those and maybe experienced those yourself. But um, I had done something uh, to make the situation even worse. Uh, I had, uh, down the road, had stolen something uh, from my uncle, um, and I'd had it for a while. And um, and when he was packing up all of his stuff to move out. It, he realized it was gone, and uh, he took it out. You know, He didn't beat him or anything, but he took it out on his son, and it made this messy situation even messier, even that much more awful and um, emotionally hurtful to the family. I had caused that because I stole. It was my fault, and I was found out. My parents... You know, we're told about it. They searched around. They found it, you know, in my room. And my mom and my dad, um, being the parents that they are, told me I had to go return it in person. And I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was broken. I knew that there was no denying this. It was clear I had taken it. It was clear that I was the one that was guilty of this. And so I'm crying, my eyes out, on my way to the house across the street. You know, at that that moment, you wish it was like a drive to your aunt's house, but it was just a walk across the street. And um, she, of course, knows we're coming. Open the door. I have it. I have to hand it back to her. And it's obvious I've been crying. And I just look at her, and I say, I'm sorry. And in the moment when I'm expecting a heavy hand of wrath to descend on me, Because not only have I stolen, I've done something obviously morally wrong. I have made a bad situation for her and her son and everybody in it worse. I fully expected my aunt to not talk to me for months, maybe years, maybe never again. Instead, what my aunt did was she took whatever it was I took out of my hands. She set it down and she said, I know you are. Come here. And she gave me a big hug. That is exactly what happens in the gospel. And that's, I'm so, I'm not thankful that I did that, but I'm so thankful that it turned out the way it did and I got caught. Because it gave me an image forever to look back on and think, what is the mercy of God? You want to know what the mercy of God is? The mercy of God is when you come before him, bare nowhere to hide all of your faults for everyone to see. And instead of God descending a heavy hand of wrath on you, he takes your sin away from you, sets it down and says, it's done, come here, give me a hug. Because I love you. That's what the gospel is. That is what mercy is, is when you actually deserve the wrath. You actually deserve the punishment, but instead of you getting it, it goes to somebody else. And they get it, and instead, you are loved by God. Let me tell you what God has done for you You have dishonored, stolen from, cheated on, lied to, fallen short of every expectation that God has ever had of you again and again and again. And instead of God's wrath descending onto onto you, his son descended to this earth. He lived among men as the man that you should have been. He was convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. He was beaten within inches of his life. And then he had to carry a cross up onto a hill that you see like... this before me, just bigger, and his executioners nailed his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross, and he hung there in the baking sun for hours until it went beyond physical agony, and now the guilt that you feel for the things you do wrong for, for all mankind descended upon him, and in one moment, he took the wrath of God upon himself so that you don't have to. And he died. But three days later, he rose from the grave. Why would God do that? Why would God send his own son to suffer in such a way that is so awful and terrible? I want to remind you of a verse that you probably know, but we tend to forget from time to time because it's quoted so much. But I think the reason after studying this that it's quoted so much is because it is so precious. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did God send His Son? Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, I'm sorry, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would God send his son? Why would he do that for you? Because he loves you. There's not a more simple answer. This week at Missional Community, we were having a conversation, like I said, about justification and the idea that you can be completely and totally forgiven for all the sin you've ever done. And we addressed this question of why why is that? fact that's true why is that so hard for some people to believe (laughs) think about it for just a couple seconds why is that so hard for some people to reconcile with and believe as being true you think and we came up with an answer and we were talking and we came up with the answer that you know it's i mean who's that nice seriously like who is who is that nice to do something like that for you You would never expect somebody like that to do it here for you. What is it that drove my aunt to forgive me the way she did? Who is that nice? It's it's one of those things where, like, you know, you try to teach your kids that if something's too good to be true, it probably is. (laughs) It's probably too good to be true. Our default frame of mind to live in is one of an exchange, where there has to be an exchange. There has to be a trade that we give in order to receive something else. That if we are going to be forgiven of our sin, that there has to be something that we do. We always default to that. I I would like to call that today man-made religion. Because any religion out there beyond Christianity says that that is true. That you have to live a certain way, be a certain way, and anything a certain way, in order to be considered good or righteous, in order to achieve whatever goal it is you're trying to achieve. Let me just be honest with you. If that's the kind of religion that you are living by, if if the kind of religion you are living by is a man-made religion that says that you've got to be a certain way, act a certain way, do this a certain way, you're going to experience some problems. Let me talk to you about some of the problems you're going to have. You're going to struggle with being afraid, and you're going to have anxiety all the time because what's going to happen to you is you're going to be afraid not of judgment from God, but you're going to be afraid that you're found out because as much as you try to put on the fact that you are a perfect person and that everything is okay, you're going to be constantly afraid that somebody eventually will see through the charade that you're putting up. You're going to see that it's not actually true, and you're going to live in constant fear of that. You're not just going to live in fear. You're going to live in isolation. And you're going to be alone and lonely because you're always going to be trying to keep people at an arm's distance. You're going to walk in here, say hi, sit down, say bye, leave. Because if you get too close, they'll find out. If I get too close to this person, they'll see who I truly am. You don't want that. But as a result, you're going to be very lonely. You'll struggle with depression. You'll be depressed because you'll be thinking the whole time as as you are trying to follow these standards and measure up to this way of living. You're going to fail over and over and over and over again. And because of that, you're going to start thinking things to yourself like, I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to overcome this. I'm always going to be this way. You're going to say things like that to yourself, and you're going to be depressed. You'll be exhausted. You'll be so Tired because you're going to try to keep up this perfect life you're going to try to be the perfect mom you're going to try to be the perfect wife the perfect husband the perfect worker at work and you are going to be exhausted because you're trying to attain this perfection and sorry you're not perfect you're going to be angry too you're going to be angry because you're going to see areas that other people struggle with that you don't struggle with and you're going to be mad at them and you're going to say, why don't you just get better? I am. Or you're going to be angry at God because he's not helping you be better. Man-made religion says that the way God feels about you is based on you. True religion says the way God feels about you is based on God and who he is and his mercy. So, I told you that I wanted you to come here for the next four weeks asking three questions. God, how do you want me to change? How do you want me to grow? How do you want me to live? The gospel could be summarized in this, God's mercy towards sinners. Have you trusted in God's mercy? Have you actually had that view of God? Is that the religion that you follow? is that I have been forgiven of my sin by God and received mercy from him? Or have you been trying to live this man-made religion of making yourself perfect, denying the truth and the reality that you're not? How do you need to change? How do you need to grow? How do you need to live? I would love to talk to you after service if you realize that there is a grace and a mercy that's offered to you that you need to take and to receive. I would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded today of how undeserving we are. But as undeserving as we are, we have been freely given grace and mercy. So Lord, I pray that right now and today you would impress it on these people's hearts what it is to be forgiven by you. God, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is so much more. In Jesus' name I pray.